Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is The View from the Couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It has been a very busy week. We have SEC schedules to talk about. We have the plans for Sanford Stadium and other college football stadiums around the Southeast to talk about. And we have a big debut that could be on tap for the Braves later today. So we have a lot to talk about. Go ahead and put me on one and a half or two times speed if you've got something to do. But today's going to be a little bit of a longer podcast, but it's going to be worth it. For months, we haven't really had a whole lot to talk about. We haven't had a lot to think about. And at least right now, we are progressing toward a college football season where we may have a whole summer and spring's worth of things to talk about, and we only have to stretch it out for about a month. So buckle up. We've got a lot to do today. All right, the schedule for the 2020 uh, college football season, at least for the SEC and our Georgia Bulldogs, that was released on Monday night. Uh, in true 2020 fashion, they released the first game at 3 o'clock at the top of the Paul Feinbaum show on SEC uh, on the SEC network. They made you wait four more hours before finding out the rest of the schedule at 7 on SEC now. I was doing some yard work. I didn't want to just sit around uh, waiting for the reveal, but when I realized it was like 7.15, I pulled it up and looked at it real quick. So let's talk about Georgia's schedule. We're just going to run through it real quick and then kind of talk about uh, a few observations that I have on it. First of all, as most people found out at 3.01 p.m. Monday afternoon, the dogs are going to start on the road at Sam Pittman and his Arkansas Razorbacks. Then the dogs come home for two rivalry games, uh, October 3rd against Auburn, October 10th against Tennessee. The big matchup against Alabama is now on October 17th. And that will be followed up with a road trip at Kentucky. So those are the first five games of the season at Arkansas, home, Auburn, and Tennessee, at Alabama, at Kentucky. Then you have the bye week right in the smack dab middle of the season. The cocktail party got moved to November 7th. It was on Halloween. Halloween, the 31st of October, is now a bye week. So November 7th, Georgia will play Florida in Jacksonville. On the road at Missouri on the 14th of November. On the 21st of November, the dogs, that's the Saturday before Thanksgiving, the, sat, uh, the dogs are at home against the Bizarro Bulldogs, Mississippi State. The Saturday after Thanksgiving, the game typically reserved for the Georgia, Georgia Tech rivalry. The dogs are going to be in Columbia, South Carolina, trying to avenge last year's only regular season loss to the South Carolina Gamecocks, and they're maybe still head coach at the time, Will Muschamp. And then the dogs will close out the 2020 season with a home game against Vandy. So that is the schedule. The SEC title game is scheduled to be on December 19th uh, and still at this point scheduled to be played in Atlanta. So, all right, let's let's just jump right in and talk about some observations. First of all, Arkansas, a lot of people, for whatever reason, I don't know if this had leaked, but it was kind of out there that a lot of people thought Arkansas was going to be the first game. It is. Uh, I think it's good for a lot of reasons. One, it's a road game, so hopefully that will kind of have, you know, it's, it's a road game in the SEC. So Kirby can go around for the next few weeks now talking about how they have to start out on the road in the SEC and, and what a challenge that's going to be. Um, so 
maybe that motivates the team a little bit more. You know, with it being an, an, an all-SEC schedule, uh, there weren't any, even the easier teams in the SEC, it's still an SEC game. So I feel like there wasn't a whole lot of chance with the extended summer that we've had and all of the changes and everything else going on, I'm not sure that the team would have needed much reason to be motivated for the first game. But I think going on the road probably helps just a little bit. It's great for Georgia. Arkansas is a complete and utter dumpster fire. That is why they have changed coaches. Chad Morris, the coach last year, was fired. I don't think he won more than 10 games in his entire career at Arkansas. I'm sorry I didn't look up the Chad Morris stats for you. You can Google it if you want to. Of course, we know their new head coach is Sam Pittman, who was the offensive line coach here for a few years for Georgia, did a wonderful job. But here's the thing. There's a reason that Arkansas had to go out and hire a guy that was an offensive line coach to be their head coach and not a top-notch coordinator from some, you know somewhere. The job is not an attractive one right now. And Sam Pittman, it's a great opportunity for him. Very happy for him. I hope he's cashing those checks as quickly as he possibly can. But the reality is Arkansas sucks, and they're going to suck this year. And it's a great start for Georgia because they don't have to be great week one. They can just go out there and be good, and that will be plenty good enough to beat Arkansas. Now, one of the fun things that we will get to see in that game is our old pal from Florida, Felipe Franks, who uh, since he lost the starting job, this is what quarterbacks do now. If you're not the starter, you transfer somewhere else. But Felipe Franks left Florida when Kyle Trask took the starting job for him after last season, and he has traveled over to uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, so he can call the Hogs with Sam Pittman. So Felipe Franks, one of the greatest quarterbacks in Georgia history, uh, will be on display in all of his glory, probably throwing pick six uh, all over the field against a very stout Georgia defense in the first game of the season. Um, <laughs> we've had some fun. I've had some fun thinking about the Arkansas game. Fun ends right now. When you talk about Auburn, Tennessee, and Alabama, that three-game stretch is, in my opinion, uh, well, it's definitely, I don't think it's an opinion, it's definitely the hardest three-game stretch any of the SEC contenders have to deal with. When you look at a team like Arkansas, well, every game is tough for them because they suck. Vandy, same situation. But for the teams, you know, in the top half of the conference, nobody has a run like that. So, Auburn and Tennessee back-to-back, -back, so much controversy over the last year or two leading up to what was supposed to be the year that those two games switched on our schedule, right? You always play Tennessee right there at the beginning of October. You always play Auburn pretty much, you know, usually your last SEC game or second to last, but those two games were Tennessee in October, Auburn in November. Uh, you know, Auburn basically has been complaining for the last few years that, you know, it sucks to have to play Georgia and Alabama two out of three straight weeks. And because of the way the schedule's set up, they're on a schedule where they're either at Georgia and Alabama in the same year or they host them both. Um, so Auburn has seemingly kind of this is what happens for whatever reason with the SEC. Auburn or Alabama whines, and the SEC office does what they need to do to try to appease them. So those two traditional games got flipped for Georgia. And coming into the – original schedule for this season there was a lot of controversy over the fact that Georgia once again was just getting their schedule thrown all the way all around just to appease other people well as it turns out 2020 has been a complete and total dumpster fire so we're going to end up playing those two games back to back in early October anyway so Auburn coming in on the third they lost a lot a, a whole lot on defense I mean most notably they lost 
Marlon Davidson, who is now an Atlanta Falcon, and they lost their big man in the middle, uh, big Mr. Brown, the defensive tackle. So they, they've lost quite a bit on defense. And so it's going to be a great matchup. You know, everybody talks about Bo Nix. I just rewatched the end of that uh, game that he had, his kind of coming out party last year uh, as a true freshman starting against Oregon in prime time in the first week of the season. The reality of Bo Nix and the hype of Bo Nix are very, very different. Now, the reality of going from your freshman season to your sophomore season, maybe he's gotten better. We'll find out pretty pretty soon because I think Auburn has a sneaky tough game the first week of the season where Georgia's going to be in Arkansas doing what they're going to do to uh, Sam Pittman and his guys. Auburn's going to be hosting Kentucky, and Kentucky's going to be solid, okay? So as I say that, you may think, oh, Kentucky wasn't yeah. Kentucky may be the the second – well, they may be the, the third best team in the East, and they may end up being the second. We'll talk about that here as we go along. But Kentucky's going to be good this year, kind of like they were a couple years ago when Georgia had to go to Lexington and win to clinch the East. I, I think Kentucky's, Kentucky's going to be a good team, and I would be shocked if that is an easy game for Auburn. I'm not saying Kentucky wins outright on the road at Auburn, but it's going to be a competitive game. So Auburn's going to be feeling it a little bit, I think, when they come to Athens the second week of the season. You know, Tennessee, that's the pivot point here, right? Because Georgia, by and large, for the last 15 years has dominated Auburn, with some notable exceptions. But more often than not, either Auburn is excellent and they beat Georgia, or Auburn is anything but great and they lose to Georgia. So I think Georgia will be able to take care of Auburn. The Tennessee game is the one where you're sandwiched between Auburn and Alabama. And who is Tennessee? You know, the last couple years, you know, obviously Pruitt going there two years ago. Last year, they were a complete and utter wreck at the beginning of the season, losing to BYU, losing to, what was it, Georgia Southern, Georgia State, one of the Georgia State. You know, they they were just a complete and utter abomination at the beginning of last year. Georgia ends up blowing them out for the second straight time in Knoxville, but there was a little, you know, the beginning of that game was at least competitive uh, for a bit. If Tennessee has improved significantly, which at times in the latter part of last season, they looked like they had gotten a lot better. If they are a lot better, that makes this three-game stretch almost completely and totally uh, windproof. It's hard for me if Auburn is good, if Tennessee is good. And you got Alabama sitting there finishing up. It's hard for me to see Georgia running the table with those games. It could happen, obviously. But but Tennessee, to me, is the pivot point there. I think you could beat Auburn just because that's going to be a good matchup for Georgia. Whatever Bo Nix is, Georgia's defense is the absolute strength of this team. You'll, you would think the offense could get rolling a little bit against Arkansas. And so it feels like that game is going to come at a good time when maybe Auburn's still trying to figure some things out on defense. Tennessee, I don't think they're back yet. I don't know that they'll ever get back. I don't know what back would honestly look like at this point for the Volunteers. Um, And then obviously the game that everybody will circle three or four times on the schedule is at Alabama. The game was originally supposed to be on the 26th of September, or on, yeah, on the 20. 19th of September. Sorry, I got myself all confused looking at numbers here. Game was supposed to be the third game of the season. Now it's the fourth game of the season. You know, it's kind of funny. It's the third Saturday in October, which is typically the day that Alabama and Tennessee play each other. But of course, all traditions have just been thrown completely out this year. But um, man, that that's going to be a tough game there. Um, 
going to Tuscaloosa. I mean, we don't know what to expect. You know, the, the assumption is that Alabama is going to just be good forever and ever as long as Saban is there. And to this point, that assumption has proved correct each and every year. But Georgia is going to have a very good team. They will be they will have been tested in the first couple of weeks of the season. If you look at Alabama's schedule kind of leading into the Georgia game, Alabama got um, – Got a pretty favorable draw. So they're on the road at Missouri. They play Texas A&M at home, and they're on the road at Ole Miss. So Missouri and Ole Miss, two teams that have brand-new head coaches. Um, so I, I don't think it could get much easier. I mean, I think Texas A&M is a good team. But being able to space those games out, I think, is a huge benefit for Alabama. Um, we'll see. Obviously, you know, I think that the trendy pick for people, you know, they're going to be kind of lazy – and not want to take a lot of chances when they're looking at this schedule is to say, well, you got two tough games leading into a road game in Tuscaloosa. That's the game Georgia loses. They go nine and one. They rematch, you know, all that. And that could happen. That's really boring. I, I haven't got any predictions for you today. The schedule's only been out for about two days. So we'll we'll kind of let this marinate a little bit before we start making predictions. But that will be absolutely the trendy pick for Georgia to lose that game. Again, I talked about uh, to me, the dangerous piece of this is, I mean, it, it, it's dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous, those three games in a row. The, maybe the most dangerous piece is the back end. When you look at having to go to Kentucky after those three games, is there a letdown, win or lose, after that Alabama game? Uh, when you're playing Alabama, you're going to be at your best. You're going to be up for that game. Are, the, are these guys going to be ready to go to Lexington the very next week? We will see, because I do think Kentucky is going to be a solid team. Um, just one interesting note, they did end up changing the date for the cocktail party. So as I said, it was going to be October 31st on Halloween night, or afternoon as it were. Uh, now it's been moved to November 7th. That pretty much screws over a lot of people that uh, have their hotel and condo situations booked down on the Georgia coast uh, months and months in advance. Not sure how that's working out, but uh, that'll be a story for the coastal area of Georgia and obviously the Jacksonville area moving that game a week later. Um, the assumption is that the stadium will not be full, of course, down in Jacksonville, but some kind of limited capacity uh, split between the two teams. But if you've got a condo and you've paid a premium for that condo uh, for Georgia, Florida weekend, which is what people have to do. Uh, now you have just paid a premium to be down at the coast during Halloween. So not sure how things are being handled for that. Obviously, we see this uh, pretty much every other year. There's a huge gap between home games for Georgia. So even in this condensed 10-game season, no home games between the 10th of October and the 21st of November. Again, if, you, if you're new to the party, that might seem strange. If you're an old Georgia fan, been around for a while, that's not the most uncommon thing in the world. When, when we're the designated home team in Jacksonville, it seems like it kind of, you find month, a month gap between home games there. Um, I think, you know, as much as everybody's focusing on the front side of the schedule, let's, let's take a moment to focus on the back side of the schedule where, you know, at least before the season, if you make it through that Florida game, it looks pretty good. The month of November and that first week of December looks nice. I mean, on the road to Missouri, Mississippi state, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt, you know, obviously on paper, uh, those are all wins. Now that's why they play the game. And obviously Georgia found out with South Carolina last year, you can't just assume a victory. Um, 
you know, hosting Mississippi State, I think, is going to be interesting. Obviously, Mike Leach, the new coach of Mississippi State. What, what Georgia will benefit, therefore, is for Mississippi State, they are playing Georgia the week before they have the Egg Bowl the very next week. Um, so that'll be interesting. Uh, the rivalry games seem to fall, like the Auburn, Alabama, Vandy, Tennessee, Mississippi State, and Ole Miss. All of those games are falling on that Saturday or, I guess, that weekend after Thanksgiving, um, not the last week of the season. So that's kind of interesting. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a nice back end of the schedule for Georgia. So if the dogs can manage maybe just to have one loss coming out, you know, you, you gotten through, or you've gotten through Florida, you're 5-1 and one at that point. No matter who that loss is to, uh, again, presuming probably Alabama, but – if you've lost a game there, you're going to have some time to really put together some impressive wins on the back end of the schedule and be 9-1 and one rolling into the Georgia Dome, hopefully, to play for the SEC Championship. Outside of Georgia, let's talk about some things that really caught my eye on the schedule. You know, one of the things that jumped out very, very quickly that may end up being a very interesting, you know, uh, day for Georgia fans to watch. Tennessee and Florida play on the the last day of the season. So that game, which is typically the first SEC game for each team, that is the last game. December 5th, Tennessee or Florida at Tennessee. That's weird. Uh, I said something uh, when I was talking about Georgia's schedule a moment ago about South Carolina and uh, maybe their head coach will must champ. The reason I say that is, oh my God, to be a South Carolina Gamecock. You start the season hosting Tennessee at Florida, at Vanderbilt. Okay, so you win that game. You host Auburn, and you're on the road at LSU. Now, South Carolina was decent last year at times. Obviously, they beat Georgia, so at least a little bit of respect has to be given there. But that is an absolute gauntlet. So for South Carolina, you can play well and be 2-3 and three or 1-4. and four. I don't think they lose to Vanderbilt. I think Vanderbilt and Arkansas are going to be competing very hard to see which team is the absolute bottom of the SEC this year. But I could absolutely see South Carolina having a problem against Tennessee. Um, And then they will definitely be underdogs at Florida against Auburn and at LSU. So tough, tough start to the season for South Carolina. After their bye week, they do get – to host Texas A&M. It doesn't get any easier. It's going to be hard for Will Muschamp to find five wins on this schedule. Uh, and if he goes four and six, I don't know. I mean, who knows how things are going to be in this post-COVID or in the middle of COVID world. Will it affect how uh, coaching changes are dealt with? To me, if Will Muschamp goes four and six, I think there's going to be some people in Columbia that are ready to see uh, some new blood come in there. Um, poor Vandy. Let's just, you know, the, the, the beginning and the end. This is uh, Vandy opens on the road at Texas A&M. Then they get to have their home opener against the defending national champion LSU. Their middle of their schedule are games that at least Vandy fans could talk themselves into thinking, hey, maybe we could win. Their last three, they host Florida, host Tennessee, and then come to Sanford Stadium in the last week of the season. So, uh, whew, poor Vandy, poor Vandy. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the big observations as I was looking, especially at the contenders, man, Alabama, they just, I don't know. I, I'm not 100% sure that the SEC offices aren't actually located in Tuscaloosa and more specifically 
in Nick Saban's office because Bama does not have back-to-back tough games. So I'll just read it off to you real quick. At Missouri, home for Texas A&M. At Ole Miss, home for Georgia. At Tennessee, home for Mississippi State. At LSU, coming off a bye week, then they get to play Kentucky. Auburn, Arkansas. I mean, it, it really is spaced out just about as conveniently as it could be when you think about how many SEC games they're playing, you know. When you when you look at the schedule and you say, okay, you know that they're going to end up playing Texas A&M, Georgia, LSU, and Auburn. I mean, I guess you could throw Tennessee in there. So, I mean, that none of those games are back-to-back is, is kind of mind-blowing. So, once again – Alabama gets everything Alabama wants. You know, if you if you didn't hear it a couple of weeks ago, uh, the assumption was for a long period of time that the SEC was just going to take the next two uh, cross-divisional opponents for each team and tack that on to this year's schedule, and that's the way they were going to do it. Two teams apparently had a problem with that plan. Those two teams were Florida and Alabama, and the reason they had a problem was because they were going to have to play each other. And so uh, – of course, they whined and they got what they wanted. And what Alabama wanted, it seems they got exactly what they wanted when it comes to that schedule. Um, as I've already mentioned a couple times in reference to Arkansas, it's going to be a tough, tough year for Sam Pittman. Uh, please pray for Sam Pittman. Uh, I think he's a good guy, but he's going to have a rough go of it. Uh, after opening with Georgia, he's on the road at Mississippi State, at Auburn, home to Ole Miss. Check this Check this piece out. At Texas A&M, home to Tennessee, at Florida, home to LSU. Then they get to go on the road to Missouri. Okay, Missouri's probably going to be pretty bad. And then their last game of the season, Alabama. So, whew, that is that is a murderer's row for Sam Pittman. And then the big question, as it is every year, you've got Georgia there in the East. They have established themselves as three-time defending SEC East champions. You know, obviously, LSU had a great great season last year, maybe one of the greatest in college football history, but Alabama's been the cream of that division for a long time. But you've got Alabama and LSU kind of jockeying there. The the questions are always, okay, who's the next team? So in the East, it's all for the last few years, it's been, is there a team that can challenge Georgia? Will they step up and actually beat Georgia and be able to be good enough? You know, obviously South Carolina beat Georgia last year, but they weren't good enough to actually make it all the way to Atlanta. So will a contender step up to challenge Georgia in the East, as I've said, I think it's Florida, obviously, but I think Kentucky could kind of throw their hat in there a little bit. For Alabama, they are, I think, again, the cream of the crop when it comes to the West. But obviously LSU is good, and they are coming off a national championship, so they obviously are going to have a lot of confidence. The question is Texas A&M, okay? Uh, when is it going to pay off the fact that they are paying Jimbo Fisher $10 million a year? Is it going to pay off? You know, Kellen Mond has to be considered the best quarterback returning in the SEC. And it's an all-SEC schedule. It's the most important position in football. You've got an experienced head coach that's won a national championship. So the question is going to be asked, and it should be asked, is this the year that A&M puts it together? And the question will obviously be answered throughout the course of this season, but Texas A&M – they did pick Florida up as one of their games that, that they got added to their schedule. And so they play Alabama and Florida back-to-back in week two and week three of the season. And then they close their season with LSU and Auburn. So 
it will it will be very interesting to see because I think you know will they be firing uh, will they be firing a coach in uh, Texas at Texas A and M probably not Jimbo's there he's not going anywhere they still owe him a ton of money so the amount of money they'd have to pay for him to go away at this point is probably not worth making a move but more and more you know they were going eight and four under Kevin Sumlin now this year playing an all SEC schedule you know what's the benchmark and that's that's been the conversation you'll have a lot of people kind of a lot of different guesses you know will the best record in the league be eight and two. Will it be nine and one? Can anybody go undefeated? You know, those are the kind of things that are being asked. But let's just be honest. If Texas A&M, given this schedule, if they go seven and three, to me, that's not a step up from where they were. And the reason that they fired Kevin Sumlin and the reason they made the financial commitment that they did to Jimbo Fisher was because they wanted to move up into that Alabama LSU level. And at this point, they are firmly entrenched at the Auburn level where they can have a moment where they come up and, and beat somebody. But at the end of the day, they are not in the top tier of the SEC, the SEC West, or obviously college football in general. So it will be very interesting to see how long the patience lasts in College Station. So real quick, want to kind of tell you some news came out just today about uh, – particularly about Sanford Stadium. Uh, the Athletic Association released information to season ticket holders saying that basically uh, between 20 and 25% capacity is what they're looking at right now. Uh, they've kind of laid out a very convoluted process for how uh, tickets will be distributed and that seatbacks will be included with all tickets this year because that's how they're going to tell you where to sit. Um, social distancing they did specifically said masks were going to be mandatory coming in the stadium and walking around the stadium it was notable that it didn't say masks would be necessary while you were sitting in your seat um but we'll kind of it, it all remains to be seen and i didn't say it in the first segment because i was having so much fun talking about the schedule but i think at this point we all understand that all of this is still very up in the air uh, the season itself is up in the air, but whether or not fans are even going to be allowed in the stadium is up in the air. There is no professional sports team right now uh, that is allowing anywhere close to 20,000, 23,000, I think is the number that George is talking about to start with. There's nowhere in, in, in this country where that's happening right now. There's some uh, fans being allowed at some MLS games, but much smaller numbers than that. So whether or not in, you know, essentially six weeks, things will, will open up to where 23,000 people will be able to gather, even in a stadium that seats, you know, nearly 94,000, that remains to be seen. But at least at this point, that's the plan. And that 23,000 will be made up of donors primarily, but with obviously the band's going to be there, students, players, families, a couple things that was interesting to me, uh, no road tickets for any anybody other than uh, families. So uh, each school is going to be given 500 tickets for, for road games, but that pretty much only leaves enough for the players' families, coaches' families. You know, I don't know if the band members' families get to go, but, uh, you know, it, they made a point to say that tickets will not be made available through the Athletic Association for road games, with the exception, of course, being for Georgia-Florida, where, again, about 20,000 tickets will be distributed for that game, so 10,000 per uh, 
per fan base or per school for Jacksonville. So that stadium, I've been one time. Uh, I didn't think that it was the great uh, venue for college football, mainly because the the half and half to me made it to where the stadium never really rocked. You know, I've been to Williams Rice Stadium a couple times in South Carolina, and man, that place is just crazy. Obviously, Sanford Stadium's crazy. Been to Auburn a couple times, it gets crazy. So even road games, you still get that big game SEC atmosphere. When I was at the cocktail party uh, in 2006, I I didn't feel like it was a a really extraordinary atmosphere. It felt a lot more like a pro game, where you have some moments of it getting loud, but it, it it's not that just that buzz that college football has about it. Um, so 10,000 per school going to be a pretty, uh, I mean, I think most of, most of the atmospheres across the country are going to be pretty docile, but I think Jacksonville even more so maybe might be able to get some good reading in, uh, if you took a book, um, you know, Kirby said this week, and I think his introductory press conference on Sunday night, they asked about that kind of concept, that road game. And I think it was specifically about the Alabama game, you know, did, did he, think that it would be easier going on the road to play in Alabama without williams Bryce Stadium being uh, – or Williams-Bryce – Bryant-Denny Stadium being jam-packed with Alabama fans. And, you know, Kirby basically said that he felt like with that sound system they have, they will find ways to make sure that it's nice and loud. Uh, I don't know what the SEC is going to do about that. Uh, I mean, obviously, they can play stuff – outside of the in-game action, but I don't think there's going to be any way to simulate the kind of noise that would be there when the opposing team is on offense. Uh, so it'll be interesting. Kirby is always playing stuff down. Um, the official word hasn't come out yet from the university, but I would just assume no tailgating. I can't imagine. I mean, I don't know how they'll enforce that, but I can't imagine that they're going to uh, open themselves up to have to deal with any sort of tailgating. So, here we are on the 19th of August. We should be like two and a half weeks away from the start of the season. But, of course, COVID has wrecked all of our plans. Now we just hope we're a little more than a month away from the start of the season. But interesting to know now what the plan, at least at this point, is for Sanford Stadium as well as the other SEC venues. Pay our attention now to our Atlanta Braves, who surprisingly, maybe to some, I would count myself in that, uh, continue to remain in first place. Uh, They've played fairly well over the past week. The issues, you can kind of start seeing now uh, what this team is, what the team is going to be. You know, as a sports fan, fan is short for fanatic. So I don't have to be logical in the way that I approach this. You know, insanity is doing the same things and expecting something different to happen. Uh, It surprises and frustrates me every single night when our pitchers can't go out there, starting pitchers in particular, and throw strikes. Uh, Tuki Toussaint had a horrible outing just a couple days ago. Kyle Wright takes the mound tonight, which means uh, if if history repeats itself, what we're going to see is we're going to see, you know, an inning or two of absolute brilliance followed up by an inexplicable fall off of a cliff. So, I'm not real sure where the Braves, what they could do uh, for starting pitching, as I've already kind of said on the podcast over the last couple of weeks. To me, I don't see the trade deadline being a huge opportunity just because there's going to be a huge value gap between the team that is trading away the asset, um, in this case, a starting pitcher to the Braves, uh, and the, the, the value the 
the team trading for that asset is going to have on it versus the value the team that's trading the asset will have. And so when you when there's going to be so much up in the air about that, I, I just don't see a big deal or, or, or a huge deal. You know, could I see like a Kevin Gossman type deal? Yeah, I could see something like that happening. I don't think there's a big deal. There's not going to be a name, I don't think, that the Braves will be able to go out and trade for where Braves fans are going to go, yes, now we're a contender for the World Series. Now, you have a certain section of the fan base who believes we're a contender for the World Series right now because we're winning more than we're losing. To me, what I've seen in the last two years of the playoffs, specifically in 2018, but then also just as you understand like the Nats run last year. Well, you can, you can be a, a good team and get in the playoffs and make a run. You can if you have the Nats starting pitching. The Braves do not. The Nats were, I mean, they are elite when it comes to starting pitching. The Braves are absolutely dog crap when it comes to starting pitching. Max Freed, it continues the last couple times through the rotation. It continues to impress me to no end how he has been able to pitch, given the fact that the entire world knows well, we better win that one because that's the one game that you think, okay, our starter is really good. Outside of that, you know, they're pitching Mike Tomlin. They've, you know, they've gone away now from Newcomb and, and others. You know, obviously Fulton Evich is gone. They, they seem completely reluctant to bring up uh, Tucker Davidson or Ian Anderson. I'm not sure why. Maybe that changes sometime in the next week. Maybe those guys really aren't ready. And I, I think that's the part of this. You know, when you, when you hear people talk about prospects, the, the part that we don't know is if they are ready. You know, if you bring up an Ian Anderson and he gets shellacked, the fan base is going to immediately ask, well, why in the world have we been protecting this guy for the last couple of years? The way I know that that's what the fan base will be is I will be the one screaming that the loudest. So there is a risk in bringing those guys up. But at this point, it you know, and, and no offense, I think Kyle Wright's one of the guys we should keep pitching. I think he has a very bright future, uh, and I took you the same way. The problem is there's four guys that you're worried about, and then there's Max Free. And so it just it continues to be, you know, late-inning heroics. It's fun. You know, if we're going out and we're scoring 10 runs and winning, that's great. But, man, it, it's, a, it's a hard way to live right now if you're a Braves fan because it just seems like every night, you know, I've been kind of hanging out and doing some stuff with the family, turned the game on around 8, 8.15, and we're down 3 to nothing. And we're winning more than we're losing, but good God, it's so hard. to. It, it just feels like you're down three or four to nothing to start with. And then when you look back or when you are watching the whole game and you see that it's because our guys just cannot throw strikes. It, it's maddening. It's infuriating. You know, Snit saying after Tukey's last start, you know, he's just got too many pitches. He needs to simplify. And, you know, Snit's been saying the same thing about Newcomb, Tukey, for weeks. So I'm not 100% sure, you know, as the manager, if he has the ability to tell the catcher, listen, he's called for three pitches. Don't let him go out there and try to throw five pitches. Call three pitches. These are the three pitches we want him to throw and go out there and call the game. I don't know how that really works in a major league setting, but for me, it's getting a little bit annoying to hear Snit say all this stuff that anybody sitting on their couch at home can see. Uh, but nothing necessarily changing on the field. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, it, I find myself the way I felt myself in the last couple of years with Georgia football. It's hard when you're going to 11 and one to be frustrated. 
it's hard when you're in first place with the Braves right now to be aggravated and frustrated. But to me, we are living on a razor's edge at this point, and it seems very likely, or I would not be shocked if we have a week where we go 0-5 or 0-6 because Free loses his start and we just get shellacked across the board. Um, the bullpen has been extraordinary. It's been absolutely extraordinary, and that is the only reason that this team has been able to win is because even when the starters can't get out of the third and fourth inning, the bullpen has been able to come in, hold the opposing team at least reasonably most nights to a point to where, where the offense, second and third time through the order, have been able to, to manufacture some runs. There is, over the last few days, there have been growing issues with uh, the Braves you know, batting average of running, runners in scoring position. You kind of see it feels like there's a little trend starting there. Uh, if they stop scoring seven, eight, nine, ten runs a game, we're going to have a bad week or two, and this entire season uh, could go that quickly because it is such a, a small season. Even with a 60-game season, it's so hard with baseball because one day – the team feels like it sucks. The next day, it feels like we could win the World Series. I mean, it's just, it's so hard to treat baseball like other sports. You know, if you're watching a, a football game, pro football, college football, high school football, whatever, you're watching a football game, you lose and you look bad doing it. It's a very big deal. You get blown out 13-1 to 1 in a baseball game. Like, let's say Kyle Wright just gets lit up tonight. The Braves lose 13-1. to 1. That doesn't really matter that much. Now, if it happens three times in a week, it's a problem. And obviously with baseball, we want to talk about trends more than just single instances. But the, the one trend that doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon is there is no hope for the starting pitching. Other than these young guys, something just clicking, which, of course, could happen. Or, you know, the unicorn for this season for the Braves would be Cole Hamels, who, as uh, a good friend put it on Twitter earlier today, I believe he walked by a pitching mound sometime in the last couple of days. So, hey, things are uh, improving. Snit's update was that he still is not throwing off the mound. Uh, he's 36 years old. So one would assume that even once he starts throwing off a mound, it's not going to be a one week and he's back in the rotation situation. As I said earlier, and anybody with a phone or a calendar can see, it's, you know, it's August the 19th. So the trade deadline is in less than two weeks. He's He would be eligible, I think it was like September 4th or 5th, to come off. So that's three weeks, and he can come off the DL. Um, but at that point, there's only three weeks left in the season. So, you know, we're at the quarter post right now, and it, it's going to be, or I guess a third of the way through the season. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see how things progress over the next week or two and to see if the Braves can even pull off a Kevin Gosman-sized deal to, uh, to try to supplement their pitching just a little bit. I feel like as, as somebody who has grown more and more through this entire, you know, delay to the season and the start of the season, somebody that's gone a little bit more critical of the franchise than I probably ever have been before, I, I find it so funny that, you know, you, you have people on Twitter, you have people, you know, just in general talking about how, well, you know, the Braves have suffered a lot of injuries with their pitching which they have. I mean, you know, you, you can't get Hamels on the field. Obviously, you had to make the decisions you had to make with Newcomb and with uh, Fulton Evich, and you've had issues with, you know, Mike Soroka obviously was the biggest hit of all. But to me, 
the the problem I have with those people is that when you start saying, well, you know, if we had King Felix and if we had Cole Hamels, you're betting on something that probably shouldn't have been the bet to start with. And the fact that it hasn't worked out, you know, if if my plan for the financial stability for my family is to spend $100 every day playing the lottery, I could look back and say, damn, I just got unlucky that I wasn't able to hit the lottery and set myself up for a long-term, you know, success. But the reality is more than having that to blame, the fact that I didn't win the lottery to blame, I think most people could look at that and say, that's pretty, that's pretty bad plan. That's the way I look at how the Braves approach some things this year, especially with the starting pitching. Yes, it has not worked out, but it was also a bad plan to start with. So what you were banking on and hoping for was essentially winning the lottery with Felix Hernandez and Cole Hamels being, you know, significant portions of your starting rotation in 2020. Kind of in that same vein, I was not very excited about Nick Markakis coming back early in this year. I was kind of sarcastically excited when Nick Markakis opted out because it, it just posed the eternal question of uh, where's Brian Snicker and somebody get him a box of tissues because he loves Nick Markakis. He loves Nick Markakis in right field and he loves Nick Markakis batting fourth. And it doesn't matter what else is going on in the world. Snick loves that stuff. I wondered at times if maybe a couple years ago he he had you know the little board they put the lineup on and maybe he used a permanent marker to put Marquez in the fourth spot so he's just kind of had to roll with that I don't know but I was not excited at all with Marquez coming back I didn't feel like he had a place in the team and of course he's come back he hit the walk off like his second game back uh, he's been excellent he has been excellent. Uh, and it, it is always, any success that Nick Markakis has is bittersweet for me because I never wanted him here. I've been vocal about that. And so as much as I am happy that the team does well, it just chaps me so much that it's Markakis that's doing it because um, I still think it's a terrible plan. I, I, I still think the Braves should have done something different in the outfield. Of course, this is 2020. So the good that Nick Markakis has done has been completely undone by the fact that now he has he has a COVID scare. He's testing negative, but apparently, I mean, the, obviously he's entitled to his privacy, but at some point he was around somebody who is now tested positive. And so he's out for at least a, a short period of time. We don't really know the the brilliant thing that MLB did, and I don't say that sarcastically. You know, the anything related to COVID, there's not a 10-day, there's not a five-day or a three-day. They can just put him on the COVID list and just set him aside for a while. And until that gets straightened out they don't have to designate how long the player is going to be out so it is literally day-to-day with Nick Markakis right now um, which is absolutely infuriating because they said on the broadcast last night like baseball works this way but you know if Markakis was there he would have been there with some runners on and he's been doing a really good job and this was when the Braves couldn't you know cash in multiple opportunities they had in the game against the Nats last night um, the Potential silver lining with the Markakis uh, COVID scare, which sounds terrible to say, doesn't it? I didn't even have that. That wasn't what I meant to say. The only good thing we can take out of this at this point is that tonight, Christian Pache, 21-year-old top prospect in the Braves organization, is set to make his major league debut. He will be playing, I believe, in center field. 
Um, he might be playing left field, actually. I think he's playing left field with uh, Enciarte still in center. He's batting ninth. So Christian Pache, we've heard that name for the last couple of years. Uh, we'll get to see him in the flesh tonight. I know there are a lot of Braves fans that have been frustrated with Ender playing so incredibly badly. Um, there's been some de defensive miscues, not nearly as many as Ozuna's had, but there's been some defensive miscues from uh, Enciarte, and obviously his bat is just barely better than mine would be if I was playing for the Braves right now. Uh, of course, Pache comes up last night. He wasn't in the starting lineup. The word apparently came in kind of late about the Marquecas situation, and so they didn't want to rush Pache and rush him into the lineup last night. So uh, Ozuna played outfield. He was awful, as he is awful. I cannot believe. You know, I said it again. This is another thing I was wrong about. In my head, there was no way that a Major League Baseball player could be bad enough that you couldn't put them in the field. But Exhibit A, Marcelo Zuna, he cannot play the field. Um, you know, and of course, with the potential that his replacement is now being called up and was sitting in the dugout last night, either Enciarte goes three for three and draws a walk. So uh, that was like his best plate or his, his best uh, game at the plate in, I don't know, maybe ever, probably since like Little League or something. But for Braves fans, if you've been, if you're like me and you've just been, supremely frustrated with the starting pitching and maybe over the last week or two you just haven't been uh, paying as much attention or watching as much of the team turn it on tonight this is one of those nights where we get to see a guy hopefully get his first hit and hopefully show us why we should be excited about what's to come uh, in a very young player's career but from what everybody has always said he has a huge upside so maybe we get to see the start of a great career uh, with Christian Pache tonight. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast this week. If there's anything that uh, major happens, we will rush an emergency pod sometime between now and next Wednesday. If not, we'll come back. We'll be seven days closer to the start of the NFL season, which is rapidly approaching. It's so weird. It's going to get here before the college football season. Uh, but we've got NFL on the horizon. We've got uh, college football on the horizon. We are smack dab in the middle of the NBA playoffs. If you're from Canada, hey, the NHL playoffs are happening too. So, hey, that's fun. They had a five-overtime game the other night, which is basically they played a whole game, another whole game, and then like two-thirds of another game. And – for some reason, in hockey, that's a good thing. Um, whatever. Um, the FedEx Cup playoffs, if you're a golf fan, they start this weekend up in Boston. Uh, Atlanta United returns to the field under their new coach, Stephen Glass, Saturday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, they will be at a very empty Mercedes-Benz Stadium to start their uh, regular, I guess, the resumption of the regular season after the MLS back is tournament. And then the Braves and the Phillies this weekend. So uh, it's in Atlanta. So we can boo Bryce Harper from our couches, even if we can't go to Truist Park and boo him in person. Again, thank you for listening. Have a great week. Stay well. And go dogs. Go Braves. Go United.